0: Forgotten Classics Where a good story never goes out of style Hello everyone, I'm Julie and here we have episode 278 of Forgotten Classics where we begin a new story This is called A Matter of Importance by Murray Leinster Murray Leinster is somebody whose stories I have enjoyed for a long time and I think maybe this will give you a good idea First though Let's talk about the podcast highlight. This is something that I have been binge listening to, which is pretty easy because there are only eight episodes so far, and they're 15 minutes each. It's called Food News, and believe it or not, it's from ESPN. Yes, I saw that, and I thought, that must stand for something else. Nope, no, it doesn't. But imagine, if you will... Two people, a guy and a girl, in this case, Juliet and Jacoby, that's David Jacoby, taking various news releases from food outlets like Taco Bell, Starbucks, McDonald's, various places like that, and reading them and treating them like you would sports news on ESPN. So somebody's reading the news, the other one's reacting, just like you would to news about a football game or a basketball game or something. And so what they'll do is talk about things such as, on the most recent episode, Taco Bell saying that they're going to serve alcohol at their different restaurants. And they've got to go over that. Oh, what do they like? What do they not like? The thing that makes this really move is they only take 15 minutes to do each thing. And at the end of each episode, before the 15 minutes is up, when they only have three or four minutes left, they do a food tasting. Sometimes they just ran by a grocery store and grabbed every kind of non chocolate chocolate they could find and they taste them. Sometimes it's something like the non ice cream ice cream. Sometimes it's legit stuff, but it's got a twist like Japanese Kit Kats. And I now really, really, really want to try a green tea Japanese Kit Kat. Those sounded amazing. They have a great rapport, they have a fast give and take. It's never slow. It's always entertaining. And I forgot to mention some of the news items they found on some of the older episodes, like the guys who stole the bread truck with the 700 loaves of bread. The two guys in Alaska who broke into a giant warehouse and stole cases of frozen pizza and then tried to sell them to the policeman on duty. Wow, I wonder why they got arrested. Anyway, this is a lot of fun, so definitely check it out. Food News with Juliet and Jacoby. And of course, I'll have a link in the show notes. Now, to the story that we're going to hear. And I guess this is really more of a novella, not a story, because it's certainly going to take two parts. This is by Murray Leinster, as I said, and he wrote a ton of stories, a lot of which are not in copyright, so you can hear them at LibriVox read by Mark Nelson, a lot of them, and you know he's a favorite reader of mine. But there are stories done by all kinds of people, and he will cover the gamut from funny to scary. I mean, he's just all over the place and always entertaining. This one looks at what would happen if you didn't have a space patrol, so to speak, like a Navy, but you had cops instead. How would cops handle things? And what happens when you have an emergency with a spaceship? And maybe some aliens. I found it entertaining and also a bit enlightening. We'll see what you think. Let's dive in, and I'll meet you on the other side. A Matter of Importance by Murray Leinster. Nobody ever saw the message torp. It wasn't to be expected. It came in on a course that extended backward to somewhere near the rift, where there used to be hucks, and for a very, very long way it had traveled as only message torps do travel. It hopped half a light year in overdrive and came back to normality long enough for its photocells to inspect the star-filled universe all about. Then it hopped another half-light year, and so on. For a long, long time it traveled in this jerky fashion. Eventually, moving as it did in the straightest of straight lines, its photocells reported that it neared a star which had achieved first magnitude brightness. It paused a little longer than usual while its action circuits shifted. Then it swung to aim for the bright star, which was the Sol-type sun, Varenga. The torp sped toward it on a new schedule. Its overdrive hops dropped to light-month length. Its pauses in normality were longer. They lasted almost the fiftieth of a second. When Varenga had reached a suitably greater brightness in the message Torp's estimation, it paused long enough to blast out its recorded message. It had been designed for this purpose and no other. Its overdrive hops shortened to one light hour of distance covered. Regularly its transmitter flung out a repetition of what it had been sent so far to say. In time it arrived within the limits of the Varenga system. Its hops diminished to light minutes of distance only. It ceased to correct its course. It hurtled through the orbits of all the planets, uttering silently screamed duplicates of the broadcasts now left behind to arrive later. It did not fall into the sun, of course. The odds were infinitely against such a happening. It pounded past the sun, shrieking its news, and hurtled on out to the illimitable emptiness beyond. It was still squealing when it went out of human knowledge forever. The state of things was routine. Sergeant Madden had the traffic desk that morning. He would reach retirement age in two more years, and it was a nagging reminder that he grew old. He didn't like it. There was another matter. His son Timmy had a girl and she was on the way to Varengafor on the Cerberus, and when she arrived, Timmy would become a married man. Sergeant Madden contemplated this prospect. By the time his retirement came up, in the ordinary course of events, he could very well be a grandfather. He was unable to imagine it. He rumbled to himself. The Telefax hummed and ejected a sheet of paper on top of the other sheets in the desk's in cubicle. Sergeant Madden glanced absently at it. It was an operations report sheet, to be referred to if necessary, but otherwise simply to be filed at the end of the day. A voice crackled overhead. "'Attention, traffic,' said the voice. "'The following report has been received and verified as off-planet.' Message follows. That voice ceased, and was replaced by another, which wavered and wobbled from the electron spurts normal to solar systems, and which make for auroras on planets. Mayday! 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 said the second voice. Call for help! Call for help! Ship Cerberus, Major Breakdown Overdrive, heading Proceron Three for refuge. Help urgently needed. There was a pause. Mayday! 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 Call for help! Sergeant Madden's face went blank. Timmy's girl was on the Cerberus. (sighs) Then he growled and riffled swiftly through the operations report sheets that had come in since his tour of duty began. He found the one he looked for. Yes, Patrolman Timothy Madden was now in overdrive in squad ship 740, delivering the monthly precinct report to headquarters. He would be back in eight days, maybe a trifle less, with his girl due to arrive on the Cerberus in nine and him to be married in ten, but, Sergeant Madden swore, as a prospective bridegroom, Timmy's place was on this call for help to the Cerberus, but he wasn't available. It was in his line, because it was specifically a traffic job. The cops handled traffic, naturally, as they handled sanitary code enforcement and d and mercantile offenses and murderers and swindlers and missing persons. Everything was dumped on the cops. They'd even handled the hucks in times gone by, which, in still earlier times, would have been called a space war and put down in all the history books. It was routine for the cops to handle the disabled, or partly disabled, Cerberus. Sergeant Madden pushed a button marked, Traffic Emergency, and held it down until it lighted. "'You got that Cerberus report?' he demanded of the air about him. "'Just,' said a voice overhead. "'What have you got on hand?' demanded Sergeant Madden. "'The Aldebs here,' said the voice." There's a minor overhaul going on, but we can get her going in six hours. She's slow, but you know her. Hmm, yeah, said Sergeant Madden. He added vexedly, My son Timmy's girl is on board the Cerberus. He'll be wild he wasn't here. I'm going to take the ready squad ship and go on out. Passengers always fret when there's trouble and no cop around. Too bad Timmy's off on assignment. Yeah, said the traffic emergency voice. Too bad, but we'll get the Aldeb off in six hours. Sergeant Madden pushed another button. It lighted. Madden, he rumbled. Desk. The Cerberus has had a breakdown. She's limping over to Proceron three for refuge to wait for help. The Aldeb will do the job on her, but I'm going to ride the squad ship out and make up the report. Who's next on call duty? Willis, said a crisp voice. Squad ship 390. "'He's up for next call, playing squint-eye in the squad room now.' "'Pull him loose,' Sergeant Madden ordered, "'and send somebody to take the desk. "'Tell Willis I'll be on the tarmac in five minutes.' "'Check,' said the crisp voice. Sergeant Madden lifted his thumb. All this was standard operational procedure. A man had the desk. An emergency call came in. That man took it, and somebody else took the desk. Eminently fair.' No favoritism, no throwing weight around, no glory-grabbing. <laughs> Not that there was much glory in being a cop. But as long as a man was a cop, he was good. Sergeant Madden reflected with satisfaction that even if he was getting on to retirement age, he was still a cop. He made two more calls. One was to records for the customary full information on the Cerberus and on the Proceron system. The other was to the flat where Timmy lived with him. It was going to be lonely when Timmy got married and had a home of his own. Sergeant Madden dialed for message recording and gruffly left word for Timmy. He, Timmy's father, was going on ahead to make the report on the Cerberus. Timmy wasn't to worry. The ship might be a few days late, but Timmy would better make the most of them. He'd be married a long time. Sergeant Madden got up, grunting from his chair. Somebody came in to take over the desk. Sergeant Madden nodded and waved his hand. He went out and took the slide stair down to the tarmac where squad ship three hundred ninety waited in standard police readiness. Patrolman Willis arrived at the stubby little craft seconds after the sergeant. Proseron three, said Sergeant Madden, rumbling. I figure three days. You told your wife? I called said Patrolman Willis resignedly. They climbed into the squad ship. Police ships, naturally, had their special drive, which could lift them off without rocket aid and gave them plenty of speed, but filled up the hull with so much machinery that it was only practical for such ships. Commercial craft were satisfied with low-power drives, which meant that spaceport facilities lifted them to space and pulled them down again. They carried rockets for emergency landing— but the main thing was that they had a profitable payload. Squad ships didn't carry anything but two men and their equipment. Sergeant Madden dogged the door shut. The ship fell upward toward the sky. The heavens became that blackness studded with jewels which is space. A great yellow sun flared astern. A half-bright, half-dark globe lay below the planet Varenga four, on which the precinct police station for this part of the galaxy had its location. Patrolman Willis, frowning with care, established the squad ship's direction, while Sergeant Madden observed without seeming to do so. Presently, Patrolman Willis pushed a button. The squad ship went into overdrive. It was perfectly commonplace in all its aspects. The galaxy went about its business. Stars shone and planets moved around them, and double stars circled each other like waltzing couples. There were also comets and meteors and calcium clouds and high energy-free nuclei, all of which acted as was appropriate for them. On some millions of planets, winds blew, and various organisms practiced photosynthesis. Waves ran across seas, clouds formed and poured down rain. On the relatively small number of worlds, so far inhabited by humans, people went about their business with no thought for such things or anything, not immediately affecting their lives. And the cops went about their business. Sergeant Madden dozed most of the first day of overdrive travel. He had nothing urgent to do as yet. This was only a routine trip. The Cerberus had had a breakdown in her overdrive. Commercial ships' drives being what they were, it meant that on her emergency drive she could only limp along at maybe eight or ten lights, which meant years to port, with neither food nor air for the journey, but it was not even conceivable to rendezvous with a rescue ship in the emptiness between stars. So the Cerberus had sent a message torp, and was crawling to a refuge planet more or less surveyed a hundred years before. There she would land by emergency rockets, because her drive couldn't take the strain. Once aboard, the Cerberus should wait for help. There was nothing else to be done. But everything was nicely in hand. The squad ship headed briskly for the planet Proceron 3, and Sergeant Madden would take the data for a proper official emergency call traffic report on the incident, and in time the ALDEB would turn up and make emergency repairs, and see the Cerberus out to space again and headed for port once more. That was absolutely all there was to anticipate. Traffic handled such events as a matter of course. So Sergeant Madden dozed during most of the first day of overdrive. He reflected somnolently when awake that it was fitting for Timmy's father to be on the job when Timmy's girl was in difficulty, since Timmy was off somewhere else. On the second day he conversed, more or less, with patrolman Willis. Willis was a young cop, almost as young as Timmy. He took himself very seriously and Sergeant Madden reached for the briefing data. He found it disturbed. Willis had read up on the kind of ship the Cerberus was, and on the characteristics of Proceron three, as recorded a century before. The Cerberus was a semi-freighter, candlest type. Proceron three was a water planet with less than 10% of land, which was unfortunate because its average temperature and orbit made it highly suitable for human occupation. Had the ten percent of solid ground been in one place, it would doubtless have been colonized. But the ground was an archipelago. Hmm, said Sergeant Madden after reading. The survey recommends this northern island for emergency landing. Eh? Willis nodded. Hux used to use it. Not the island. The planet. Sergeant Madden yawned. It seemed pathetic to him that young cops like Willis and even Timmy, referred so often to Huck's. There weren't any anymore. Being a cop meant carrying out purely routine tasks nowadays. They were important tasks, of course. Without the cops, there couldn't be any civilization. But Willis and Timmy didn't think of it that way. Not yet. To them, being a cop was still a matter of glamour rather than routine. They probably even regretted the absence of Huck's. But when a man reached Sergeant Madden's age, glamour didn't matter. He had to remember that his job was worth doing in itself. "'Yeah,' said Sergeant Madden. "'There was quite a time with those hucks.' "'Did you... did you ever see a huck, sir?' asked Willis. "'Before my time,' said Sergeant Madden. "'But I've talked to men who worked on the case.'" It did not occur to him that the Hucks would hardly have been called a case by anybody but a cop. When human colonies spread through this sector, they encountered an alien civilization. By old-time standards, it was quite a culture. The Hucks had a good technology, they had spaceships, and they were just beginning to expand themselves from their own home planet or planets. If they'd had a few more centuries of development, they might have been a menace to humanity but the humans got started first. There being no longer any armies or navies when the Hucks were discovered, the matter of intelligent non-humans was a matter for the cops. So the police matter-of-factly tried to incorporate the Huck culture into the human. They explained the rules by which human civilization worked. They painstakingly tried to arrange a sub-precinct station on the largest Huck home planet with Huck cops in charge. They made it clear that they had nothing to do with politics and were simply concerned with protecting civilized people from those in their midst who didn't want to be civilized. The Hucks wouldn't have it. They bristled proudly. They were defiant. They considered themselves not only as good as humans, the cops didn't care what they thought, but they insisted on acting as if they were better. They reacted, in fact, as humans would have done if just at the beginning of their conquest of the stars, they'd run into an expanding, farther-advanced race, which tried to tell them what they had to do. The Hucks fought. They fought pretty good, said Sergeant Madden tolerantly. Not killer fashion, like Delinks. The Force had to give them the choice of joining up or getting out. Took years to get them out had to use all the off-duty men from six precincts to handle the last riot. The conflict, he called a riot, would have been termed a space battle by a navy or an army, but the cops operated within a strictly police frame of reference, which was the reverse of military. They weren't trying to subjugate the Hucks, but to make them behave. In consequence, their tactics were unfathomable to the Hucks, who thought in military terms. Squadrons of police ships, which would have seemed ridiculous to a fighting force commander, threw the hucks off balance, kept them off balance, did a scrupulous minimum of damage to them, and thereby kept out of every trap the Hucks set for them in the end. The cops supervised and assisted at the embittered, rebellious emigration of a race. The hucks took off for the far side of the galaxy; they'd neither been conquered nor exterminated. But Sergeant Madden thought of the decisive fracas as a riot rather than a battle. Yeah, he repeated, they acted a lot like delinx. Patrolman Willis spoke with some heat about delinx, who are the bane of all police forces everywhere. They practice adolescent behavior even after they grow up. But they never grow up. It is delinx who put stink bombs in public places and write threatening letters and give warnings of bombs about to go off, and sometimes set them, and stuff dirt into cold rocket nozzles and sometimes kill people and go incontinently hysterical because they didn't mean to. Delinx do most of the damaging things that have no sense to them. There is no cop who has not wanted to kill some grinning, half-scared, half-defiant delinx who hasn't yet realized that he's destroyed half a million credits worth of property or crippled somebody for life, for no reason at all. Sergeant Madden listened to the denunciation of all the Delink tribe. Then he yawned again. "'I know,' he said. "'I don't like em either. But we got them. We always will have em Like old age.' Then he made computations with a stubby pencil and asked reflectively, When are you coming out of overdrive? Patrolman Willis told him. Sergeant Madden nodded. I'll take another nap, he observed. We'll be there a good twenty-two hours before the Aldeb. The little squad ship went on at an improbable multiple of the speed of light. After all... This was a perfectly normal performance. Just an ordinary bit of business for the cops. Sergeant Madden belched when the squad ship came out of overdrive. He watched with seeming indifference while patrolman Willis took a spectro on the star ahead and to the left and painstakingly compared the reading with the ancient survey data on the Proceron system. It had to match, of course, unless there had been extraordinarily bad astrogation. Willis put the spectroscope away, estimated for himself, and then checked with the dial that indicated the brightness of the still point-sized star. He said, "'For light weeks, I make it.' Sergeant Madden nodded. "'A superior officer should never do anything useful so long as a subordinate isn't making a serious mistake.' That is the way subordinates are trained to become superiors, in time. Patrolman Willis set a time switch and pushed the overdrive button. The squad ship hopped, and abruptly the local sun had a perceptible disk. Willis made the usual tests for direction of rotation to get the ecliptic plane. He began to search for planets. As he found them, he checked with the reference data. All this was tedious. Sergeant Madden grunted, "'That'll be it.' he said, and pointed. Water world, it's the color of ocean. Try it. Patrolman Willis threw on the telescope screen. The image of the distant planet leaped into view. It was Proceron three. The spiral cloud arms of a considerable storm showed in the southern hemisphere. But in the north, there was a group of specks which would be the planet's only solid ground. The archipelago reported by the century-old survey... The Cerberus should have been the first ship to land there in a hundred years, and the squad ship should be the second. Patrolman Willis got the squad ship competently over to the planet, a diameter out. He juggled to position over the archipelago. Sergeant Madden turned on the space phone. Nothing. He frowned. A grounded ship awaiting help should transmit a beam signal to guide its rescuer. But nothing came up from the ground. Patrolman Willis looked at him uncertainly. Sergeant Madden rumbled and swung the telescope below. The surface of the planet appeared, deep water, practically black beneath a surface reflection of daytime sky. The image shifted, a patch of barren rocks. The sergeant glanced at the survey picture, shifted the telescope, and found the northernmost island. He swelled the picture, He could see the white of monstrous surf breaking on the windward shore, waves that had gathered height going all around the planet. He traced the shoreline. There was a bay up at the top. He centered the shoreline of the bay and put on maximum magnification. Then he pointed a stubby forefinger. A singular, perfectly straight streak of black appeared, beginning a little distance inland from the bay and running up into what appeared to be higher ground. The streak ended not far from a serpentine arm of the sea which almost cut the island in half. That'll be it, said Sergeant Madden, rumbling. The Cerberus had to land on her rockets. She had some ground speed. She burned a ten-mile streak on the ground coming down. He growled. Commercial skippers should have matched velocity aloft. Take her down. The squad ship drove for ground. Patrolman Willis steadied the ship no more than a few thousand feet high, above the streak of scorched ground and ashes. It was heading inland, all right, rumbled Sergeant Madden. Lucky. If it had been heading the other way, it could have gone out and landed in the sea. That would have been a mess. But where is it? The squad ship descended farther. It followed the lane of carbonized soil. That marking narrowed. The Cerberus had plainly been descending. Then the streak came to an end. It pinched out to nothing. The Cerberus should have been at its end. It wasn't. There was no ship down on Proceron Three. The matter ceased to be routine. If the liner's drive conked out where Proceron-3 was the nearest refuge planet, it should have landed here at least six days ago. Some ship had landed here recently. Set down, grunted Sergeant Madden. Patrolman Willis obeyed. The squad ship came to rest in a minor valley, a few hundred yards from the end of the rocket blast trail. Sergeant Madden got out. Patrolman Willis followed him. This was a duly surveyed and recommended refuge planet. There was no need to check the air or take precautions against inimical animal or vegetable life. The planet was safe. They clambered over small rocky obstacles until they came to the end of the scorched line. They surveyed the state of things in silence. A ship had landed here recently. Its blue-white rocket flames had melted gullies in the soil, turned it to slag, and then flung silky, gossamer threads of slag wool over the rocks nearby. At the end of the melted away hollows, twin slag lined holes went down deep into the ground. They were takeoff holes. Rockets had burned them deeply as they gathered force to lift the ship away again. Sergeant Madden scrambled to the edge of the nearest blast well. He put his hand on the now solidified, glassy slag. It wasn't warm, but it wasn't cold. "'The glass-lined hole of rocket leaves takes a long time to cool down.' "'She landed here, all right,' he grunted. "'But she took off again before the torp arrived to tell us about it.' "'Willis protested. "'But, Sergeant, she had only one set of rockets. "'She couldn't have taken off again. "'She didn't have the rockets to do it with.' "'I know she couldn't,' growled the sergeant. "'But she did.' The Cerberus, once landed, should have waited here. It was not only a police regulation, it was common sense. When a ship broke down in space, the exclusive hope for that ship's company lay in a refuge planet for ships in that traffic lane. Even lifeboats could ordinarily reach some refuge planet for picking up later. They couldn't possibly be located otherwise. With three dimensions in which to be missed and light years of distance in which to miss them, No ship or boat had ever been found as much as a light week out in space. No ship with a crippled drive could possibly be helped unless it got to a specified refuge world where it could be found. No ship which had reached a refuge planet could conceivably want to leave it. There was also the fact that no ship which had made such a landing would have extra rockets with which to take off for departure. The Cerberus had landed... Timmy's girl was on it. It had taken off again. It was either an impossible mass suicide or something worse. It certainly wasn't routine. Patrolman Willis asked hesitantly, "'Do you think, Sergeant, could it be Huck sneaked back?' Sergeant Madden did not answer. He went back to the squad ship and armed himself. Patrolman Willis followed suit." The sergeant boobied the squad ship so no unauthorized person could make use of it, and so it would disable itself if anyone with expert knowledge tried. Therefore, nobody with expert knowledge would try. The two cops began a painstaking quest for police-type evidence to tell them what had happened and how and why the Cerberus was missing after a clumsy but safe landing on Proceron Three, and when all sanity demanded that it stay there and when it was starkly impossible for it to leave. Sergeant Madden and Patrolman Willis were self-evidently the only human beings on a planet some 9,000 miles in diameter. It was easy to compute that the nearest other humans would be at least some hundreds of thousands of millions of miles away, so far away that distance had no meaning. This planet was something over nine/tenth rolling sea, but there were a few tens of thousands of square miles of solid ground in the one archipelago that broke the ocean’s surface. It was such loneliness as very few people ever experience. But they did not notice it. They were busy. They went over the ground immediately about the landing place. Rocket flame had splashed it, both at the Cerberus landing and at the impossible takeoff. There was nothing within a hundred yards not burned to a crisp. They searched outside that area. Sergeant Madden rumbled to his companion, Where'd the other ship land? Patrolman Willis blinked at him. There had to be another ship, said Sergeant Madden irritably, to bring the extra rockets. The other ship had to have brought them, and it had to have rockets of its own. There's no spaceport here. Patrolman Willis blinked again. Then he saw, the Cerberus carried one set of emergency landing rockets for use in a descent on a refuge planet if the need arose. The need had arisen, and the Cerberus had used them. Then, from somewhere, another set of rockets had been produced for it to use in leaving. Those other rockets must have come on another ship. But it was a trifle more complicated than that. The Cerberus had carried one set of rockets and used them. One. It had been supplied with another set from somewhere. Two. They must have been brought by a ship which also used a set of rockets to land by. That made three. Then the other ship must have had a fourth set for its own takeoff, or it would be grounded forever on Proceron three. Patrolman Willis frowned. We looked pretty carefully from aloft, he said uncomfortably. If there had been another burned-off landing place, we'd have seen it. I know, rumbled Sergeant Madden. And we didn't. But there must have been another ship aground when Cerberus came in. Where was it? It probably knew the Cerberus was landing to wait for help. How? If somebody was coming to help the Cerberus, it would be bound to spot the other ship, and it didn't want to be spotted. Why? "'Anyhow, it must have taken the Cerberus and sent it off, "'and then taken off itself, "'leaving nothing sensible for us to think. "'Sounds like Delinx.' "'Then he growled. "'Only it's not. "'There'd have to be too many men. "'Delinx don't work together any more than two or three. "'Too jealous of showing off. "'But where was that other ship? "'And what was it doing here?' Patrolman Willis hesitated, and then said, "'There used to be pirates, sergeant.' "Uh "'Uh-huh,' said the sergeant. "'You had it right the first time, most likely. "'Not delinx, not pirates. "'You said hucks.' "'He looked around, estimatingly. "'The rockets had to be brought here from somewhere else where they'd landed. "'I'm betting the tracks were covered pretty careful, "'but rockets are heavy.' Manhandling them, whoever was doing it, would take the easiest way. Hmm, there's water close by over yonder. Sort of a sound in there, too narrow to be a bay. Huh, let's have a look. And the slopes are easiest that way, too. He led off to the eastward. He thought of Timmy's girl. He'd never seen her, but Timmy was going to marry her. She was on the Cerberus. It was the job of the cops to take care of whatever dilemma that ship might be in. As of here and now, it was Sergeant Madden's job. But besides that, he thought of the way Timmy would feel if anything happened to the girl he meant to marry. As Timmy's father, the sergeant had to do something. He wanted to do it fast, but it had to be done the right way. The route he chose was rocky, but it was nearly the only practicable route away from the burned-dead landing place. He climbed toward what on this planet was the east. There were pinnacles and small precipices. There were pinnacles and small precipices. There were small, fleshy-leaved bushes growing out of such tiny collections of soil as had formed in cracks and crevices in the rock. Sergeant Madden noticed that one such bush was wilted. He stopped. He bent over and carefully felt of the stones about it. A small rock came out. The bush had been out of the ground before. It had carefully been replaced. By someone. The rockets came this way, said the sergeant with finality, hauled over this pass to the Cerberus. Somebody must have knocked this bush loose while working at getting them along, so he replanted it, only not good enough. It wilted. Who did it? demanded Patrolman Willis. Who we want to know about, growled Sergeant Madden. Maybe Hucks. Come on. He scrambled ahead. He wheezed as he climbed and descended. After half a mile, Patrolman Willis said abruptly, You figure they all left before anybody tried to find them? The sergeant grunted affirmatively. A quarter mile still farther, the rocky ground fell away. There was the gleam of water below them, rocky cliffs enclosed an arm of the sea that came deep into the land here. In the cliffs, rock strata tilted insanely. There were red and yellow and black layers, mostly yellow and black. They showed in startlingly clear contrast. "'Right,' said Sergeant Madden in morose satisfaction. "'I thought there might have been a boat. But this is it.' He went down a steep descent to the very edge of the Sound. It was even more like a fjord, where the waters of the ocean came in among the island's hills. On the far side, a little cascade leaped and bubbled down to join the sea. You go that way, commanded Sergeant Madden, and I'll go this. We've got two things to look for, a shallow place in the water coming right up to shore, and look for signs of traffic from the cliffs to the water. By the color of those rocks we ought to find both. He lumbered away along the water's edge. There were no creatures which sang or chirped. The only sounds were wind and the lapping of waves against the shore. It was very, very lonely. Half a mile from the point of his first descent, the sergeant found a shoal. It was a flat space of shallow water, discoverable by the color of the bottom. The water was not over four feet deep. It was a remarkably level shoal. He whistled on his fingers. When patrolman Willis reached him, he pointed to the cliffs directly across the beach from the shallow water. Lurid yellow tints stained the cliff walls. Odd masses of fallen stone dotted the cliff foot. At one place they were piled high. That pile looked quite natural, except that it was at the very center of the shoreline next to the shoal. "'This rock's yellow,' said Sergeant Madden, rumbling a little. "'It's mineral. If we had a geiger, it'd be raising hell here. "'There's a mine in there. Uranium. "'If a ship came down on rockets and landed in that shoal place yonder, why, "'it wouldn't leave a burned spot coming down or taken off either, you see?' Patrolman Willis said, Look here, sergeant. I'm in command here, growled Sergeant Madden. Hux didn't booby-trap. Proud as hell and touchy as all get-out, but not killers. Not crazy killers, anyhow. You go get up yonder, up where we started down. Then go on away, back to the squad ship. If I don't come along, anyhow, you'll know what's what when the Aldeb comes. Patrolman Willis expostulated. Sergeant Madden was firm. In the end, Patrolman Willis went away, and Sergeant Madden sat at ease and rested until he had time enough to get back to the squad ship. It was true that the Hucks didn't booby-trap. They hadn't had the practice, anyhow, eighty years ago. But this was a very important matter. Maybe they considered it so important that they'd changed their policy concerning this. Squeezing a little, Sergeant Madden pulled away large stones and small ones. An opening appeared behind them. He grunted and continued his labor. Nothing happened. The mouth of a mine shaft appeared, going horizontally into the cliff. Puffing from his exertions, Sergeant Madden went in. It was necessary if he were to make a routine examination. The Aldeb came in a full day later. It descended, following the space beacon the squad ship set up from its resting place. The Aldeb was not an impressive sight, of course. It was a medium-sized police-salvaged ship. It had a crew of fifteen, and it was powerfully engined, and it contained a respectable amount of engineering experience and ability, plus some spare parts, and, much more important, the tools with which to make others.' It came down in a highly matter-of-fact fashion, and Sergeant Madden and Patrolman Willis went over to it to explain the situation. "'The Cerberus came in on rockets,' grumbled the sergeant, in the salvage ship's skipper's cabin. She landed. We found signs that some of her people came out and strolled around, looking for souvenirs and such. I make a guess that there was a mining man among them, but that's only a guess.' Anyhow, somebody went over to where there's some party-colored cliffs, where the sea comes away inland, and when they got to that place, why, there was a ship there. Then, he paused, frowning. It would have been standing on an artificial shoal place about thirty yards from a shaft that was the mouth of a mine, uranium, and there's been a lot of uranium taken out of there. It was hauled right out of the mine shaft across the beach to the ship that was waiting. And there's fresh work in that mine, but not a tool or a scrap of paper to tell who was working it. It must have been cleaned up like that every time a ship left after loadin' up. Human beings wouldn't have done it. They wouldn't care. Hucks would. There's not supposed to be any of them left in these parts, but I'm guessing it was a mine dug by Hucks, and the Cerberus was taken away by them, because the humans on the Cerberus found out there was Hucks around." Patrolman Willis said, The sergeant took a chance on the mine being booby-trapped and went in, after sending me out of range. The sergeant scowled at him and went on. How it happened don't matter. Maybe somebody spotted the ship from the Cerberus as it was coming down. Maybe anything. But whoever ran the mine found out somebody knew they were there, so they rushed the Cerberus. There probably wasn't even a stun pistol on board to fight with. And... They put new rockets on her. The skipper of the salvage ship Aldeb nodded wisely. "'A ship coming to load up minerals where there wasn't any spaceport,' he observed, "'would have a set of rockets to land on, empty, and a double set to take off on, loaded. Yeah.' "'They must have figured,' said Sergeant Madden, "'that we just couldn't make any sense out of what we found.' And if we hadn't turned up that mine, maybe never would. But anyhow, they sent the Cerberus off and covered everything up and went off to stay themselves until we gave up and went home. I wonder, said the skipper of the Aldeb, where they took the Cerberus. That's my job. Not far, grunted Sergeant Madden. They had to be taking the Cerberus somewhere. If they just wanted to wipe it out after they rushed it, they could have just set off its fuel like it had happened in a bad landing. And that landing was bad. If there'd have been a fuel explosion crater at the end of that burnt line on the ground, nobody'd ever have looked further. But there wasn't. So there's a place they're taking the Cerberus to. But it's got a broke-down drive. It can only hobble along. They can't try to get, but so far. What's the nearest Sol-type star? The all skipper pushed a button, and the precinct atlas came out of its slot. The skipper punched keys, and the atlas clicked and whirred. Then it screen-lighted. It showed a report on a solar system that had been fully surveyed. "Uh Uh-huh, grunted the sergeant. A survey would have showed up if a planet was Huck-occupied. What's next, nearest? Again, the atlas whirred and clicked. A single line of type appeared. It said, Cyrene, 1432 unsurveyed. The galactic coordinates followed. That was all. This looks likely, said the sergeant, unsurveyed and off the ship lanes. It ain't between any place and any other. It could go a thousand years and never be landed on. It's got planets. It was highly logical. According to Krishnamurti's law, Any Sol-type sun was bound to have planets of such-and-such relative sizes in orbits of such-and-such relative distances. "'Willis and me,' said the sergeant, "'we'll go over and see if there's Hux there and if they've got the Cerberus. You better get this stuff on a message torp ready to send off if you have to. Are you going to come over to this, Cyrene 1432?' The skipper of the Aldeb shrugged. "'Might as well. Why go home and have to come back again?' "'There could be a lot of hucks there.' "'Yeah,' admitted Sergeant Madden. "'I'd guess a whole planet full of them that laid low when the rest were scrappin' with the Force. "'The others lost and went clean across the galaxy. "'These characters stayed close, I'm guessing. "'But they hid their mine here. "'They could have been stewing in their own juice these past eighty years, "'getting set to put up a hell of a scrap when somebody found them. "'We'll be the ones to do it.' "'He stood up and shook himself.' "'It's not far,' he repeated. "'Our boat's just fast enough. "'We ought to get there a couple days after the Cerberus sets down. "'You ought to be five, six hours behind us,' he considered. "'Meet your north pole furthest planet out this side from the sun, right?' "'I'll look for you there,' said the skipper of the Aldeb. "'Sergeant Madden and Patrolman Willis went out of the salvage ship "'and trudged to the squad ship. "'They climbed in. "'You got the coordinates?' asked the sergeant. I copied them off the Atlas, said Willis. Sergeant Madden settled himself comfortably. We'll go over, he grumbled, and see what makes these Hucks tick. They raised a lot of hell eighty years ago. It took all the off-duty men from six precincts to handle the last riot. The Hucks had got together and built themselves a fighting fleet then, though. It's not likely there's more than one planet full of them where we're going. I thought they'd all been moved out. He shook his head vexedly. No need for them to have to go, except they wouldn't play along with humans. Acted like de the lynx they did. Only proud. You don't get mad fightin' em. So I heard, anyway. If they only had sense, you could get along with em. He dogged the door shut. Patrolman Willis pushed a button. The squad ship fell toward the sky. Very matter-of-factly. Okay, so now we really get to see the difference between having a policeman work on a case. I love that the Hucks are a case. (laughs) And the military coming in to take care of things. And I love the policeman's down and dirty, common sense, very practical view of everything, motivations, putting together the clues of what probably happened, distributing his forces properly to take the approach to look for the missing people versus the way the military would handle it. I just love these two different points of view, which, of course, Murray Leinster is making sure that we understand. We're not going to be allowed to miss it. I was hoping I would have the second half of the story that I could just put into this, but things didn't work out, so I hope the first part wets your whistle and makes you want the second part, which I have partly recorded, so I hope I'll get that out pretty soon. Right now we're getting ready to move to a new location at work, so packing up for that and doing all the things necessary is taking a lot of my extra time. And lately around here it has been pouring down rain oh my gosh we finally got done with the regular rain cycle the weathermen said okay the faucet is turning off the sun is coming out and we had about a week of that two weeks of that just enough for everyone to stop being grateful for the sun and start complaining about the heat (laughs) because we are ungrateful right And for Tropical Storm Bill to come through, where we had two solid days of this really unusual, fine mist. The way the wind blew it around made it look as if it was a movie or something where a big fan was blowing around this very fine mist. And my husband said it made him think of tropical storms and hurricanes since he grew up in Houston and he'd be used to it. Growing up in the Midwest, not so much. I myself didn't know that kind of rain. But what felt really familiar was during some of the sunny periods, because it would come through as kind of bands of wet weather, and then there'd be a little sun and these huge fluffy clouds blowing like crazy. And so I went outside in the backyard for a little while, and that made me feel very tropical. It made me feel as if the ocean should just be right out of sight, just where I couldn't hear it. And that's from going to Florida recently and also living in Houston for a little while. So we were definitely having some tropical weather. But now the sun is out. I think we're going to be in for our regular sunshine and no rain and high temperatures. I didn't mean to roll into my personal weather life. (laughs) But that is where we wound up, isn't it? I am trying to think if I have any other podcast news, and I really don't. I have found several new podcasts that I can't wait to tell you about. So that, if nothing else, is going to keep me going with the recording. As I listen to one and then go, oh, oh I can't wait to tell everybody about this. I don't know how I'll pick which one. I have a bunch of good ones, so we have that to look forward to. I guess other than that, that's all we've got. My weather, moving the office. (laughs) So if you would like to make comments, leave story suggestions, leave story comments, you may email me at julie, J-U-L-I-E, at glyphnet, G-L-Y-P-H-N-E-T dot com. You can leave a review at iTunes because I just love reading them. It makes me feel wonderful. You may leave a comment at the blog for the podcast, which is hcforgottenclassics.blogspot.com. Any of those ways will reach me and I will be very interested to see what anyone has to say. As always, the extra thing that I want to say is I appreciate you coming by to listen. I wouldn't be reading this out loud if I wasn't thinking of you, and I enjoy reading it out loud a lot, obviously, since I could not stop. I've merely slowed down production. So thank you very much. I appreciate it. Have a great week, everyone. I'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.